everyone, and welcome to the 75th episode of The Atlas Society Asks. My name is Jennifer Anju Grossman. My friends call me JAG. I'm the CEO of The Atlas Society. We are the leading nonprofit organization introducing young people to the ideas of Ayn Rand in fun, creative ways like graphic novels and animated videos. Today, we are joined uh, by our very own senior scholars, our founder, David Kelly, and uh, our economist and Instagram impressionario, Richard Salzman, for our monthly current events uh, discussion, which will be covering a number of current events from an objectivist philosophical perspective. Um, we are also going to save some time uh, for questions through at the end of our session, um, but you can go ahead and start typing those in no matter what platform you are watching us on zoom Facebook Instagram Twitter YouTube just use the chat section and start typing in your questions so today we're going to cover three topics the human infrastructure bill curiously named and we're going to get into that a new book out by Jonathan Rauch the constitution of knowledge and the instruction by uh, attorney the attorney general to examine parents interference with school boards uh, as potential domestic terrorist activity so thanks for joining us and Richard if you'll get us into our first topic Great. Well, thank you all for joining. Uh, this first topic uh, has to do with what I would classify and what you know, those in Washington also are classifying as the debate over a human infrastructure bill. Now, this thing is supposed to be three and a half trillion dollars. Now, it is over 10 years, but that's still a lot of money. Three or four months ago, they agreed to a one trillion dollar bill hasn't been fully enacted yet or signed in. That had to do with what's called traditional old school, call it tangible or physical capital. What most people would think of as roads and bridges and tunnels and airports and waterways and things like that. The reason I think this is an interesting topic is, is uh, two things. One, the American people like infrastructure. They usually don't like the transfer welfare state where people, especially if people are getting something for nothing, if they're freeloaders. But this idea of, well, if government's gonna spend money on anything, at least fill the potholes, at least make it easier for me to get in and out of the airport. You know, they, at least uh, fix the water you in Flint, Michigan, which has been killing people for, for years. And so uh, this is another example, a very interesting one, I think, of statists using language that really doesn't mean what it means. They've done this with the word liberal, they've done this with the word progressive, and now they're doing it with the word infrastructure. Government really does often do physical infrastructure badly. That's why it's often called crumbling infrastructure. But this more recent iteration is really worse because it, the three and a half trillion is not infrastructure in the traditional sense at all. They're just calling it that. But they at least have the good graces of calling it human infrastructure. And of course, human has a good word too. They're humanitarians after all. Who can be against human infrastructure? So, so what is it? It's often also called soft infrastructure, not hard like cement and roads. All right, so here's what's in the bill. Two free years of community college for everyone. So that's soft. That's not really hard. That's just, that's soft stuff. That alone is 108 billion. Here's another one. Childcare, universal pre-K. 
for zero to five-year-olds. That one's 450 billion. Another part of it, uh, expanding Medicare, you know, it covers hospitals, doctors, uh, Bush added the prescription drug benefit. Now they wanna add dental, hearing, and vision. See, see soft stuff, this isn't cement, this is uh, contact lenses, who could be against that? Uh, here's another one, the extension of the child tax credit. So the more kiddies you have, the more money they'll give you. Um, here's one, I, I couldn't believe this one's in there. Cut and regulate pharma prices. So price controls on pharma, uh, using Medicare to tell pharma companies how much they can charge for drugs. Now, why would that be in a spending plan? They're, they're including it in here and saying, well, it will save Medicare $450 billion. See, so that's, that's part of the three and a half trillion is, well, we're gonna save, save for 450 billion by not paying pharma as much as, as they deserve. 225 billion for paid family leave, 12 weeks. 12 weeks, the government will pay you to uh, go home either for medical or um, uh, whatever child reasons. And the last really is Green New Deal stuff. There's uh, many hundreds of billions, I haven't figured out exactly how much, combating climate change, that's it. And there's like five or six different major things in here uh, basically trying to turn the economy into uh, reliance almost entirely by 2030, believe it or not, that's only nine years from now, using uh, wind and power, a uh, wind and uh, solar power. Uh, paid for how? Raising corporate tax rates back up from 21 to 26, raising personal income tax rates back up, raising capital gains tax rates back up. So that's it for the gory details, but I wanted to give you some of the details to give you a sense of what they're trying to do here. This is an expansion of the welfare state of the kind Americans typically don't like, except for the goodies, of course. It's not this kind of tangible infrastructure. And I think they're doing this, frankly, as a kind of backdoor way of getting things like price controls on pharma, Green New Deal type stuff, and uh, all the kind of stuff that, uh, you know, for the most part, they aren't really good at anyway, but might be sold. Now, politically, this is interesting because if this passes and it's not clear that it will, it will probably quite embolden Biden, the Democrats, and even the squad, the squad being the more left-wing part of the party because they're really pushing this three and a half trillion. On the other hand, if it does not pass, and that's possible because there are two holdouts. One is uh, Senator Manchin, from West Virginia, a Democrat, and another one, the one from Arizona, Kirsten Cinema. They are both against this. And they're interestingly, they said they're against it because they're against the US government making people more dependent on government. So they're actually naming, uh, I would think, a good philosophic argument against doing this. Uh, the other reason, of course, is that Manchin's from West Virginia and that would kill the coal industry. The coal industry would basically end if this were passed. So I, I think it's a good current events topic precisely because it may determine the power of the uh, Biden administration, at least through to the next um, uh, midterm elections. But I also wanted to highlight it because I think you're going to see more and more of this over the coming years where the government is really expanding beyond all reason. And, and yet they still feel they need to package it in ways that um, are acceptable, at least in terms of rhetoric and words to the American people. Um, I looked up, by the way, there's not a lot of literature on this, but if you look up soft infrastructure,
infrastructure. And if you look up human infrastructure, it's funny because it's not really something economists are spending much time on. So they're skeptical of it. But however, there is in the history of economics, and in fact, a Nobel Prize winner, I just wanted to make this point, Gary Becker won the Nobel Prize in the early 90s. He's from the University of Chicago, and he came up with the concept of human capital. And he was trying to distinguish it from plant, you know, and equipment and, and th factories and things like that. And it, it's actually a legitimate concept because it deals with things like people's education levels, their skill levels on the job, how much they know, how much experience they have, that kind of thing. And that is legitimate. You, you can speak in terms of building up, cultivating people's human capital, but you can also speak of eroding it. And the, the last point I really want to make here is these so-called investments in human infrastructure that the Congress is talking about. This is the same Congress that has given us public schools, which are eroding human capital to a massive extent, massive illiteracy rates, massive innumeracy rates. People cannot read and calculate. It is just atrocious. The dropout rates are high. So in other words, they're already on record, very badly handling, quote unquote, human infrastructure. Now, other things that are included in this concept are things like uh, the law, the courts, the prisons, uh, even things like museum and baseball parks I've seen included in cultural things, uh, included in what they call human infrastructure. And, and, and still, the record has been very bad. When government has touched these things, they've usually uh, hurt them very badly. So I just wanted to make people aware of this terminology, this language. It isn't just budget busting stuff. It's kind of this philosophic take on trying to get people to endorse uh, massive spending on what's considered human and what's considered infrastructure, but it is government doing it and doing it very badly. And also just giving uh, labels that the media can use yeah. to, uh, to propagate the you know, approved official version of, of what they're trying to do. Um, it is interesting, though, when you mentioned all of the uh, green energy subsidies that it is notably missing any uh, nuclear power yes. development, which right. actually would be hard infra infrastructure, yeah. um, but uh, and would go a long way to uh, to reducing carbon emissions uh, and. I think probably would include bipartisan support, but I, I think that's perhaps um, more symptomatic of, of where the democratic coalition is uh, right now and the kind of um, emotional commitments that are driving it rather than uh, a real focus on truly progressive politics. David, do you have some thoughts? Yeah, I just wanted to add something on the political process and uh, strategy here to what Richard just said. <clears throat> My understanding is that um, the in initially they got to 3.5 trillion by limiting the duration of certain programs. And that is an awful gimmick because it once enacted, those programs will not be terminated. Right. No. Yeah. I don't know what the record is, but it, the record of programs actually ending on time is pretty slim. So, um, but along those same lines, the, uh, the, I understand there's been a debate among the people who are trying to lower the cost of the bill um, because of mansion and cinema. Uh, 
between taking more of the programs and limiting them in time. So you reduce the price. They're only good for two or three, two, three years instead of all 10. Um, as opposed to people, who, and I think Manchin's one of them, who want to make these means tested, not open to the entire um, population. And this is a strategy that's been going on since the New Deal. Ro when Roosevelt created Social Security, um, it, it was on the face of it to deal with poverty among older people in the Great Depression. But he made it universal. And he said, actually, I have, I'm going to read you what he said um, by someone who said, you know, the economics of this is not, are just going to be horrendous. He said, well, I guess you're right about the economics, but those taxes were never a problem. They're payroll taxes of economics. There are politics all the way through. We put those payroll contributions, uh, which were still paying, of course. We put those payroll contributions there so as to give customers a legal, moral, and political right to collect their pensions. Uh, and by recruiting everyone uh, with those taxes in there and universal coverage, no damn politician can ever scrap my social security program. And the same thinking is going on. There's a mantra in welfare. Uh, activism, a program for the poor is a poor program because it won't get political support. You make everyone dependent and then they will come to expect it. Yeah. Um, so I also would ask Richard, it, it, your discussion about human capital reminds me of uh, a, a basic theme from Atlas Shrugged that the mind is the driver of everything else that we have. It's the ultimate resource. And in some ways, human capital is the most important kind, right? It's a source of financial capital, infrastructure capital, hard capital. Yeah. That seemed right. Yes, very much so. And that's why within the human capital or a debate, the biggest part is education. And, uh, and right. so, so if people aren't, if they are educated, if they, and they gain skills, so that's like practical, application of education that's considered a building up of human capital uh, but the, but the, the the data are unmistakable that in the US if that's a measure if that's a main measure it's eroded enormously now but but it's true David like if you take Silicon Valley you could say well there's brainiacs out there doing great things and their human capital hasn't been eroded that's true I'm just saying that a large swath of the population has had their human capital eroded that's probably contributing to uh, lower incomes and the inequality of income and wealth that the leftists worry about. But also, I, I would be more even cynical and say, well, these are also the broad voting populations that are giving us the welfare state. These <laughs> their uneducated people are also passing the laws and getting us the politicians that shackle the producers and shackle uh, the best and the brightest. So they're still oh. the, best, the best and the brightest are still out there but it's not due to Congress spending money on public education. And, and actually, if you look at the performance in 2020 of rule of law, it was really the rule of lawlessness and emptying the prisons. I mean, it, it's such audacity for them to come here in 2021 and say, we need to spend three and a half trillion dollars on human capital because the last year has been spent running down the, the justice system and the, the police, the police are Police, law enforcement and stuff is considered part of human capital. If you look at the literature, that that's that. Well, they're they're saying defund it. Um, so I'll, I'll leave it at that. And I, I know uh, we're going to move on to the next topic. 
and also wanted to leave questions um, for at the end, but there are a couple questions that, that came in just on this topic. David Walden on Facebook uh, loves the analysis of the concept human infrastructure. He says his only concern is with its possible uh, underlying premise and its potential for collective ownership. So that was uh, interesting. I don't know if you have a comment, Richard. Otherwise, Scott has a question for you. Uh, is part of the problem that there hasn't been any noticeable bad consequences for big government spending ever since the bailouts? Uh, is capitalism's growth absorbing some of the pain? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think when an economy stagnates, when it grows less quickly, when there's less opportunity, when there's people deciding to leave the labor force because it's just not a dynamic economy, I think that's not as visible to people because it's not like a collapse. You know, crises and collapse and mass unemployment get people's attention and then they start, or, or, to, or these days when inflation is going higher and higher, people are more likely to say, wow, uh, government's messing up. How is government messing up? But it, it's also possible, and I think actually quite likely, for these burdens of government to be basically slowing down the economy and causing it to stagnate in ways that are definitely, that is the impact. That is the, largely the impact, just not as noticeable to people. But when, right. when they complain about things like, well, my wages are stagnant and I'm not really getting ahead and it seems I'm falling behind where my parents were, these kind of broad-based kind of vague complaints about the, the state of the economy, that, that is due in large part to these increasing burdens of government. Uh, I would put it that way, Scott. Great. David, you have introduced an interesting topic for our, our current events. Uh, tell us about it. Well, we're going to take a giant leap now from legislative uh, shenanigans in Congress to uh, philosophy and to the deepest reaches of philosophy, epistemology. Um, I want to talk about a new book by Jonathan Rauch, um, a, a well-known public intellectual currently at Brookings, who published a book this summer called The Constitution of Knowledge. Uh, it's been getting a huge amount of attention, lots and lots of reviews. Um, and it's very timely indeed, because it deals with the uh, um, epistemological uh, basis for a lot of the our polarized politics and culture. Um, he argues that contending parties, both on the left and the right, um, have basically lost any interest in truth. Uh, you know, in previous episodes of polarization, complaints about polarization, going back to the 60s when Rand was writing about it, people were fighting over principles, which ones were true. But Rauch's point is that no one cares about truth anymore. Uh, on the right, uh, he says there was, and I, this is a quote, the deployment of disinformation on an unprecedented scale by Trump, his troll armies, foreign governments, conspiracy mongers, and a conservative media ecosystem, which was increasingly detached from reality-based norms. And, however, on the left, there's cancer culture, which is a kind of religion uh, less concerned or not at all concerned with truth, but only with egalitarian rectitude, um, regardless of evidence, debate, or truth. So the result in, in Rauch's view is that we're in a kind of cultural epistemological crisis in which people have lost their sense of their ability to tell 
true from false. And um, uh, no one trusts any in, any information, including whether it's from experts or on social media or whatever. So Roush is defending um, what he calls a rash, the rational alternative, um, what he calls the constitution of knowledge. Uh, he uses that term it, um, in order to highlight uh, a really deep analogy he draws between three and three enlightenment innovations. One was the free market um, based on individual rights and open trade. The second was constitutional republics, um, replacing aristocracies, kingships, etc. And the third was uh, rational inquiry, um, as reflected in journalism and Rauch's own field and science. So this analogy is not new, but um, I think he develops it in very, very interesting depth. All what, ha what these three things have in common, the economic realm, the political and the cognitive, is that there's systems of peaceful cooperation among people um, and they are structured. The cooperation is made possible by certain rules that are widely accepted um, certain procedures, certain values, and an interplay of competition and cooperation. Uh, in the case of knowledge, um, I'm going to read you an extended quote from him, because uh, I think this states his main thesis better than I can. It says, our, our, our conversations are medi mediated through institutions like journals and newspapers and social media platforms. And they rely on a dense network of norms and rules like truthfulness and fact checking. And they depend on the expertise of professionals like peer reviewers and editors. And the entire system rests on a foundation of values, a shared understanding that there are right and wrong ways to gain knowledge. Those values and rules and institutions do for knowledge what the US Constitution does for politics. They create a governing structure, forcing social contestation into peaceful and productive pathways. And so I call them collectively the constitution of knowledge. Boy, that is really elegant, powerful, and um, a well-needed reminder that not everything goes epistemologically, just as we have a constitution that limits what government can do, even though it's less and less limiting. Um, and just a short digression, if, if we have a moment, uh, Rauch's invocation of the Enlightenment was a very welcome um, point. And there have been some other books in that, um, in that, on that theme. Uh, Steven Pinker's Enlightenment Now is a, another recent example. Um, it's very gratifying to me because years ago, um, we had the idea that uh, of analyzing uh, the cultural issues in terms of an environment, a remaining environment, in enlightenment or modernist um, culture opposed by pre-modern conservative views and post-modern left-wing views. Um, I wrote about this in an essay called The Party of Modernity. Um, so anyway, on Rausch, so far, so good. But there's a worm in this apple, and it's a, it's a really, really big one. Um, 
in the core chapters, he tries to provide um, the underlying epistemological basis for his views about how knowledge can and should operate. Um, on the one hand, he refers frequently to this as a, the knowledge-based, or the, I'm sorry, the reality-based approach to intellectual community, discovery, um, debate, and so forth. But he also says that humans have no direct access to the objective world independent of our minds and senses. Well, this, to anyone who knows uh, anything about the history of epistemology, this is the dead giveaway. This is a standard idealist argument. We have to use our minds to grasp reality. Therefore, it's not reality we grasp. Uh, Ayn Rand wrote about it. Um, uh, this is an objectivist insight. Um, uh, he goes on, instead of considering not to be knowledge to be an independent grasp of reality, of facts and reality, we should think of knowledge, and again, I'm quoting him, as a set of propositions or claims or statements which have been validated in some way and which have been thereby shown to be at least conditionally true, true, that is, unless debunked. Well, you put you put these points together. What he's doing here is rejecting what in philosophy is called the correspondence theory of truth. The idea that statements are true because they correspond to facts of reality. And instead, in talking about you know propositions that have been validated by some process, um, he's embracing what's known as the coherence theory. Truth is uh, emerges from the coherence of propositions and the agreement among those who have advocated and provided evidence and back and forth. But from an objective standpoint, this is a rejection of the primacy of existence. A rational epistemology, I mean, certainly recognizes that knowledge um, is, has to be acquired through observation and inference in accordance with valid rules and methods of inquiry. We're not saying that uh, we are, we believe in, in objectivity or in what's called realism uh, because reality somehow just directly imposes itself on us. No, there's a process involved and that process has to follow certain methods and rules. But what makes those the proper methods and rules to use is that they are connected to the world. They are justified rationally. They are the right rules to use because they work to the goal of discovering facts of reality. And that gets lost in Rauch's um, account. Um, another short digression, he, I mentioned along the way, this is another tip off, he mentions his heroes are David Hume and, um, and in the 20th century, Karl Popper. Uh, he cites Hume with offering an uh, unrefutable argument um, against, um, an irrefutable argument that, and these are his words, showed no prediction or causal attribution can ever be certain, even in principle. Well, if you've read Hume, he's saying way more than that. He's saying we have no rational basis at all for any belief that of an actual connection between cause and effect. It's all just habit. And similarly, he has argues uh, um, that we can't, even in perception, we don't grasp reality. We have no belief, no grounds for believing there's an independent reality. So it's a 
Hume was much, much worse um, than that. Uh, so that invocation of the co correspondence theory is one problem with uh, Rauch's view. The second one, um, <laughs> second major one, is that he's, he describes knowledge as socially constituted. Um, to pick just one striking example, um, another quote, as the cognitive network transcends the contributions and even the cognitive grasp of any of its participants, it becomes a hive intelligence, a social mind. This is the death knell. This theme is a disaster. Um, it, it, it takes the legitimate insight that, that we share knowledge and learn tons of stuff from each other, but it turns that into, you know, it's a rejection of individualism in, in favor of a collective mind. And that just, first of all, um, undermines any coherent defense of objectivity and truth. But it also feeds directly into the postmodern views that underlie the cancel culture he opposes. I mean, he embraces the worst ideas of modern and 20th century philosophy and ignores the failure of that philosophy to justify rational knowledge, which opened the door to attacks on objectivity, the postmodern view, on the part of many thinkers that he doesn't even mention, Karl Marx, um, uh, Nietzsche, Derrida, Marcuse, and many others who are the architects of what is now cancel culture. So um, that's a pretty harsh critique. Um, and despite that, I do recommend the book. Uh, he's one of the best writers today, Ralph is in my view, and he's got this great ability to combine cultural commentary, history, narrative in a very fascinating, innovative, and highly readable way. I mean, I learned a lot from it, just his analogies um, with, the, with knowledge and the political constitution. And even on the underlying epistemology that I've taken the task for, uh, he, I'm picking out certain essential themes, but he he doesn't he's not a card carrying um rabid anti-realist he actually seems to believe in truth and the possibility of objective knowledge but um and so he wanders around these issues it, the problem is of i think a lack of you know philosophical depth but he says a lot of interesting things that despite the underlying you know uh, problems um, are worth doing uh, worth, worth you know just anyone who's interested uh, will gain something from the book however I, having said that I will say that of all the reviews I've read and read of all of them but no one mentioned the underlying epistemological problem and so my final um, point and takeaway is that our culture needs objectivism desperately <laughs> Desperately, because yes. what I'm what I was pointing out, it it it's not rocket science. I mean, yes, I'm an epistemologist. I've written about this, um, but anyone who's read Ayn Rand understood would understand these these problems. Um, I was actually put onto this book by Remy Stata, um, who sent me some very valuable notes. I'm sorry he couldn't be with us today, but. Um, 
and the but we are among the only ones who seem to have the ability to see what what once you see it is so obvious so that this is a plea for the value the value of philosophy for understanding and hopefully altering culture so thank you david all right we've got uh about 25 minutes left so um and i do want to leave some time um, at the end for discussion and some questions. I might even pull in a few of the many, many questions that, uh, that we get every week on Instagram. But Richard, you um, brought to our attention one last topic, which is I think the, uh, the good news is that there are a lot of parents uh, across the country that um, have had a much more immediate opportunity to observe what is happening with their kids curricula uh, because of all of the remote learning and um, they are not liking what they're seeing they're also objecting to uh, this particularly uh, stringent policy in so many areas of the United States which is um, at odds with, with what is going on uh, in, in most of the rest of the world with regards to masking children in schools without uh, a lot of evidence that it is working um, and uh, very, very little evidence that um, children are at risk are particularly um, culpable in, in spreading the virus. And, and so as a result, parents are, are objecting to it, but um, as they are rising up across the country, going to school boards, getting more involved and um, voicing their concerns. We are now um, seeing a, a pushback from um, the federal government who is saying that, you know, of all of the, the priorities that, that they might have in terms of um, uh, tracking down uh, real threats to, uh, to our security as citizens, uh, that that parents are, are now potential domestic terrorist threats. So Richard, tell us a little bit about this from your perspective. Yeah, th thank you, Jack. And I, I wanna thank David also for bringing this up. So I think we're gonna speak to this equally. Uh, just a couple of things. They, there's something called the National School Board Association and they're an association of a bunch of school boards. And I think there's 14,000, last time I counted, 14,000 separate school public school districts in the US. They wrote a letter to Biden saying, after all this pushback from parents, um, you need to you need to sick the FBI on them. Uh, they are domestic terrorists. They're violating hate crime laws. I'm quoting from their letter. It's about a six page letter. And there isn't really much evidence in there of actual uh, physical harm done to board members, not even threats. Of course, threats are wrong as well. These are just highly vocal parents who are coming to school board meetings, as Jag said, and, and vociferously complaining about their kids being indoctrinated in CRT and other things. So we've had current events panels in the past on CRT, so you can refer to those. But I, I think it's this reaction by the school boards themselves and particularly the Biden administration that's interesting. So that was September 29th, the six page letter where the school boards were asking for government intervention against the parents. And, and October 4th, this had to be coordinated. Only five days later, the Attorney General, Merrick Garland, 
um, wrote a memo that was released to the FBI saying, uh, within 30 days, you need to meet with these groups and identify these uh, dangerous people and go out into the hinterlands and uh, get on this, uh, which is very interesting. Now, just today, 17 state attorney generals rose up against the Merrick Garland approach, and there's been pushback elsewhere. I also noticed today, out of the 14,000 school boards, uh, a couple dozen of them have dropped out of the national organization uh, for the, on the grounds that this is uh, really bad, classifying uh, revolting parents as domestic terrorists. And this group that's lobbying Merrick, they are literally asking for use of the Patriot Act, use of hate crimes laws. I had to look up today what hate crime laws are. I didn't realize how specific they were. And, and indeed, going back to 1968, hard to believe actually, the federal government, uh, the Justice Department has a website on hate crime laws. And in the beginning, it was the hate toward people on the basis of race. Well, you can imagine 1968, any crime that was coupled with racial, obviously racial overtones and other things, those were the original hate crimes. Uh, and you would get extra time for adding that to your crime. But it's been supplemented subsequently by sexual orientation and a whole bunch of other things, as you can imagine. But what is not in there is a hate, you know, and you're a school board member. There's, there's, no, there's no special category of protection for school board members. So I don't think it's an issue of whether the FBI will or will not come down on people, uh, or whether there'll be any pushback. I think this is such an overtly authoritarian scare tactic to make people basically shut up. I don't think it's any different than jailing all those people, 600 of them, I think they jailed for the uh, January 6th riots. Um, that's okay to prosecute those people because that was rioting, but they've many of them have been uh, not charged with anything and they're still being held. So there's a kind of intimidation factor going on there. And I think it's likewise with these parents. I think they're basically trying to get the parents to shut up and not object to what's being taught. And, and people like Terry McAuliffe, who's running for governor in Virginia now, you know, is on record basically saying that parents should not have a say in the public school system as to what the curriculum could be. So that is very much the view. Their view is stay out of it. Uh, this is our job. Yeah, if you want to take your kid out, take your kid out, but you're just gonna, we're still going to get your tax money. You know, there's no voucher system that's really been adopted. Uh, I would just leave it as, as an economist, I know that socialism is public ownership of the means of production. And, and I think the basic problem here is we have public ownership of the means of instruction. We, 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 we all seem to be against socialism on the right, but, but even on the conservative side, they will not oppose public education. I, I think it's not a silver bullet, but we have to get rid of government schools. And, and that's all these boards are. These boards are attempts to oversee how the government schools are being run. But, but just as you would have no voice in the Soviet Union if you went and rallied a commissar meeting, you know, you can't really have parents expecting to get much out of these school boards. They're completely unaccountable. And so I, I, think, the, I think the fundamental problem is uh, that it's public ownership of the means of instruction. Unless we get rid of that, the, the, these are welcome but kind of futile revolts. And it's uh, also timely uh, discussion, given what we also have cooking at the Atlas Society. Our uh, next publication is uh, Philosophies of, educa of Education. Um, and uh, we're 
taking a lot of that from um, Professor Stephen Hicks works. So it, it's showing, I think we're looking at five different schools of philosophies of, of education, but you're seeing some radically different ones. One which is saying, you know, we're the experts and you don't really have a say. Um, you, you know, you just have a duty to send your, your children to us and we'll take care of the rest. Uh, and then, then others where people are saying, no, you actually work for me and, um, and I need to be able to review and, and provide feedback. So, David? And you're on mute. You're on mute, David. Unmuted. Okay. Um, I think Richard covered the issue. I, I'm outraged by this. I, I'm not a parent. I don't have kids. Um, I do live near Loudoun County uh, in Northern Virginia, where which is an epicenter of some of this stuff. Um, but I'll just I'll just point out the um, uh, hypocrisy of liberals who are running the school boards and surely most of them hated the patriot act when it was passed and used it against real terrorists and are now invoking it in the least plausible you know for the least plausible use you can imagine and the fact that our biden and uh, garrick went along with this is just it's really shocking it's really shocking you know? But I'll, I'll uh, leave it there and maybe we can turn to questions. And also, da also, David, the lack of prosecution of actual physical destruction in 2020. I mean, it was on our TVs. It was just, just in, front of, in front of us. And, and they were, none of them were prosecuted. And I, I recall the vice president actually raising money to, get the, to pay them bail and get them out. Oh, my God. Yes, that's right. Uh, it's incredible. Uh, you know, on the surface, we say, yes, we want peace and harmony in uh, school board meetings. But in that original letter to the president, I, I scrutinized it twice. They, they didn't name any incidents when there was actually any physical harm done to any um, or threats to any school board member. There was one particular parent who was wrestled to the ground because he was reminding them that his daughter was raped in this in the bathroom. And they were claiming that there was no violence on that school campus so that, that is like the only incident but so, so there's a lot of yelling and screaming but you know blm and antifa were doing more than yelling and screaming last summer if i recall there was a lot of arson there was a lot of looting there was a lot of cop killing and it's just remarkable and granted that was trump's ag and trump's ag didn't bill barr didn't do anything so and now this ag is cutting is breaking coming down on parents i, I agree with you david it's outrageous I hope so, um, power. I hope they keep it up. Yes, uh, Scott is asking. I, I think you might have just spoken to that, uh, Richard. What would you say about the double standards in yeah. prosecutions? Yeah. Um, part of the breakdown of the rule of law and the, the kind of partisan selectivity with which that they're being um, applied. Uh, I have another question here, uh, asking if either of you have thoughts on um the these sick outs these um one example being uh the southwest uh recent disruption thousands and thousands of flights canceled over the course of two days um and the official story coming from southwest being well it's 
air traffic control and it's it's the weather of course this was sort of strange weather that only seemed to affect the southwest and like you know passed over all of their competitors like something on passover um and uh but i think for, for most of the people watching and heard from the um many of the, the southwest pilots themselves saying you know this was our uh attempt to push back and say, um, we're objecting to these uh, vaccine mandates. Um, we've been flying this whole entire time. Um, you know, if, if, uh, if that population is anything like the American um, public at large, at least half of the United States already has um, natural immunity, which is uh, more robust and more durable, uh, <laughs> as we see increasingly by the day than, than the vaccine generated immunity. Um, and I, I thought this was in some ways, I, I know it's very aggravating for, for people. Um, I'm a frequent Southwest flyer who had their travel plans um, interrupted, but it also seemed to me as a kind of taking the page out of that shrugged to uh, say, you know, planes aren't gonna fly themselves and, um, and using their power as, creators as producers um, to, to impact uh, policy or impact the situation. Richard, do you have thoughts on that? Or yeah, uh, yeah, my thoughts are that, and this is, I think, very similar to the topic we just discussed, which is parents revol revolting in a way. So, so here's another case of people revolting against what they see i think as a government uh, authoritarianism in this in this particular case mandating vaccines and uh it, it's interesting to me because they're they're clearly a minority who was revolting but historically they have been minorities who revolt and who are willing to stand up and take the slings and arrows and you know as they say if you're not getting flack it means you're not over the target bombing and I'm encouraged, I think, because if this wasn't happening at all, I would be having the complaint I normally have is, why are we surrounded by sheeple? Why are, why are no Americans standing up and defending their rights? God damn it. You know? Well, here, here are some that are. And I think the good news is other Americans who are biting their tongues will watch this, will, will see this, will at least be inspired by and maybe moved to move themselves and see how it's done, so to speak. And uh, and that's why these examples are very good if you can if you can identify them as such i i didn't really like it when the southwest chairman kind of begged off and wasn't willing to say that that's why his pilots were doing that but the other thing you'll notice is uh, certain famous wealthy people are doing it so kyrie irving in the nba for example stood up and said i'm not going to be forced to do this and and his view was it isn't an issue of medical i'm not going to discuss my medical conditions i am just against the idea of government forcing me to do something and going back on its word. I mean, Biden said he wouldn't have mandated vaccines. So now they're dismissed as people who can afford to take time off, right? Because they're multimillionaires and other people are saying, I can't lose my job. So I have to bow down to this. But so I think these examples are good symbolically. I just don't know if they're going to be enough practically to reverse these policies. But, but all else equal, I'm glad to see the revolts and I hope they grow. All right, uh, Dean Scoville asks the big question, what is the progressives end game? Do they imagine anything other than 
the ceding of world control and culture to the Chinese. So is, and is there an end game, you know, or is it just uh, a question of people being kind of locked in, in their tribal, um, you know, not necessarily rational, but, but their um, partisan worldview um, or the postmodern ideology and not thinking to uh, about the practical consequences. I mean, after all, if you reject an objective reality, then uh, why would you take into account an objective consequences to your actions? So I don't know, David, who's on mute, uh, or if Richard has any thoughts on, on that. Yeah, I would, uh, <clears throat> having watched um, advocacy and the growth of government um, over many decades now, I, I think relatively few people, uh, at least in Congress anyway, or who are active in electoral politics, actually are explicitly advocating some end state like total socialism or for that matter, total subjection to uh, China. Um, and, and in the same way, I mean, objectivists and many libertarians tend to be a little unusual in thinking, yes, we can envision a totally free society, but the reality, but we're not in politics. The reality is people tend to want to push in one direction or the other. And within a broadly defined scope of what's considered politically possible. And some people are at the edges, like the progressives in the Democratic Party. Some people are at other edges, not, not enough in my view, pushing against the growth of government. Um, but it's, I, I think it's all about movement and direction of movement um, at the operative level. So that just... Uh, an observation. I don't know where to go with it. But. I have, uh, I, I am similar to David's view on that. Um, but here's how I put it as starkly as I could put it, I can put it. The progressives, from what I can tell, studying them these many years, as opposed to the liberals, both words are really wrong. The progressives are really against progress. That, that will sound weird, but they're not nihilists. <laughs> they don't actually want to tear down the uh, economy or the American way, so to speak. I wouldn't even call them, you know, Soviet style Stalinists, although AOC sounds that way every once in a while. I think they really are truly those kind of people in Atlas Shrugged who said, you know, stop the world. I want to get off. Don't change anything. Stop this dynamic, changing, bustling capital. I can't stand it. I just can't stand it. <laughs> And so no more new energy, no more new technology. No, And it's weird because they call themselves progressives, but you can count on them calling themselves the opposite of what they really want. But so that's what I think they want. I really think they want stagnation, predictability. That's why they're big on the social safety net, anti-risk, wear a mask. No climate change. Drive slowly. I hope the weather doesn't change. I mean, on every level, when you think about it, it's not really, it sounds to us who are really progressives that they're anti-progress. They are, they don't want to move ahead like we do. 
And that makes us sometimes think, wow, they want to tear the whole thing down. No, they don't actually want to tear the whole thing down. To us, it seems that way because they're in our way and we want to build nuclear and, and, and skyscrapers and stuff like that. They don't. They're anti-growth. They're like no growth. That J John Stuart Mill said this years ago, the steady state. Remember, David, the steady state. Just mediocrity. I'll just leave it at that. It's 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 something as boring and as pathetic as that. It's not more dramatic than that, but it's definitely not progress. Reminds me of uh, Brandon's essay, uh, "The Divine Right of Stagnation." Exactly right. Exactly. I wish I had. Yes, the divine right of stagnation was that. <laughs> was that Na uh, Nathaniel Brandon? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Virtue of selfishness. Yeah. Uh, maybe our gremlins can put that into the into the chat here. Um, all right, one more question. Uh, David Walden asks if either of you have thoughts on the use of federalism as an offensive strategy for use against the rising power and scope of Leviathan. Well, I would only say I'm glad we have federalism because you can move from state to state to escape some of the tyranny. Um, mm -hmm. So if, if that's all you mean, yes, to the max. Uh, like these AGs, AGs today, the 17 AGs who stood up against, mm -hmm. the, uh, th that's an act of the states combined. Or, you know, Ron DeSantis in Florida saying, no, we're going to be a free state and we're not going to uh, put up with this. So, yes, yeah, so all else equal, if the U.S. did not have a federalist system, the authoritarianism would probably spread more quickly and that's why, by the way, from Washington, they're trying to nationalize everything. The school systems, uh, Common Core. I really think their attempt to defund the police is not really to get rid of police. It's to get rid of local police, in which case they'll substitute national police. Uh, the Capitol Hill police, if you know, are now national. They're all over the country, uh, presumably defending Nancy Pelosi, for example, in San Francisco. So they're already adopting a national police force. So. Yeah, we are losing federalism, but I think it is stopping the speed at which the authoritarianism is coming because you can move with your feet. You can move yeah, that, that's, that's a good point. I, I think also that there is uh, a, a more concerted effort, groups like um, Americans for Tax Reform, our friend Grover Norquist, working on doubling the number of states that, that do not have uh, an income tax. And um, you know, finding other ways for states to be more competitive. Yeah. Um, I know our friends at the Goldwater Institute, for example, are, are looking at various state constitutions and trying to use, leverage them to uh, en enact reforms um, at the state level. So, and to end it out, we have a question from Jay LaPere, who is the chairman of the board of the Atlas Society mm -hmm. and who will be joining me tomorrow. I hope that some of you who are in our, um, in our the Atlas Society Asks community have uh, found a way to get yourselves onto Clubhouse. If not, um, then please check out the event mm -hmm. section of our website and we will give you an invite because we are doing two sessions on Clubhouse every week, every Tuesday. Uh, our senior fellow, Rob Krasinski, is um, having a discussion. And then um, on Thursdays, we're rotating some of our senior scholars uh, with guest appearances by people like Jay LaPere, who tomorrow will be talking about 
um, objectivist business ethics and how it's helped him overcome various um, crises and obstacles uh, and, uh, and thrive in both his professional and business life. And so, uh, David, this one's a question for you regarding the Rauch book, is the defense of free speech and thought an effective first step um, and platform for civil discourse that creates an entry point for the pursuit of truth? Uh, an entry point to advance the epistemology and ethics needed for further progress. Uh, yes, ab absolutely. Uh, without freedom of speech, uh, no, no real progress is possible. Um, and so I think that freedom of speech, to defend it thoroughly, you have to believe in reality. Uh, because if you just are a skeptic, then there's no reason to listen to anyone else because your view is as good as anyone else's or theirs is as evil as as anyone else's. So, um, but that said, many people um, do have been willing um, to defend freedom of speech and institutionalize it as we did in our, our uh, in our constitution and in many uh, charters of universities and so forth and in the free press. Uh, and what it does is it allows these debates to go on. I remember Ryan Ayn Rand said, one of the signs when it's time to rebel is when free speech is ended, when we can no longer fight with ideas, but only with arms. Um, now, and I, in that respect, I will say that um, I think Rausch is very good, even in the parts of the book that I was critiquing, in arguing that about how important it is to keep open discussion as a counter to uh, confirmation bias that happens in small groups of echo chambers and reinforcing people reinforcing each other. And that what, what makes the growth of knowledge really possible is that ideas get challenged. They get challenged um, peacefully, without guns, normally, hopefully. Um, but they, they get challenged and at their, that brings out points none of us as individuals might have thought of. So that's great. Um, and I think that is the only way to advance philosophical ideas because we don't have open discussion. If we can't challenge people who disagree with us, um, the game's over. Um, so I think it is both, you know, we count on as advocates and intellectuals and theorists, we count absolutely on the freedom to speak, think, make our case, argue um, without fear of, of uh, suppression. So thanks, Jay, great question. Thank you. Um, and as I mentioned, uh, please uh, tune in to my conversation with Jay tomorrow. Richard, maybe you'd tell us a little bit about the conversation that you have scheduled next week you are going to be taking over uh, the host seat here um, in your conversation with Steve Hank. Hankey. Steve Hankey from the Cato Institute is an absolute monetary expert, and I've known him for decades. And he's a uh, advocate of sound money, and he teaches at Johns Hopkins. He's taught there for many years. 
but he's also got some opinions on cryptocurrencies, which will interest this audience, I think. And uh, he's just fabulous and uh, a hard to get interview. So I'm glad we got him, Jay. He'll be great. You got him, Richard. We got him. You got him. He likes <laughs> the society. Know that. Uh, all right. Well, thank you. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. I want to particularly thank, I, I saw a lot of uh, comments coming in from names I recognize, not just from this forum, but from um, our roster of donors. So I really want to thank you, not just for spending time with us and helping to make these sessions lively, but I want to Thank you for having the integrity to say, you know, I'm really enjoying this con content. I know that uh, that their time and their knowledge and the contributions aren't free. And so I appreciate you guys taking the responsibility to say, yeah, I want to make a tax deductible donation to the Alpha Society. So you can do that. Uh, on our website, there's a donate section. Um, and for those of you who I've already recognized, I know that you are donating. Um, Jay LaPere and our other trustees are going to be matching any increase in donations. So let's say you usually give $50 a year, maybe this year you give $100 and, uh, and that will net us $150. So I appreciate that. And I also want a, uh, another reminder to all of those who are yeah. either if you're in the Southern California area, Nevada, um, New Mexico, Arizona, uh, to consider joining us for our gala. It's coming up in two weeks and one day. Actually, we're having a reception uh, on the third. So that is in two weeks. I am going through my outfits, and this is an option that I'm considering for <laughs> the gala. So, uh, so, yeah, we'd love to see you there. As you guys know, we're going to be honoring Peter Thiel, and we are also going to be having uh, Paul Malucky, the founder of Oculus, as a speaker. We have all of our senior scholars, senior fellows joining us. We have our trustees, and we have other special guests. I mean, take a look at our host committee. Uh, if you want to meet some of those folks, please consider joining us. And if you can't join us, maybe send us a little something so we can bring a student in your stead. So. Thanks everyone, and um, I will see you tomorrow, and we will see Professor Salzman next week. Thank you. Thanks everyone. <laughs>